Are you or anyone else you know interested in buying or selling a home? How about saving the planet? Climate Change Realty is the only company operating in all 50 states that allows you to create thousands of dollars in donations absolutely for free. Yes, that's right. Our service and your donations are free. Climate Change Realty can connect you with one of the best real estate agents in your city. And because of that connection, a full 25% of your real estate agent's commissions will be donated to a 501c3 nonprofit organization of your choice. Real estate agents earn between 2 to 3% of the final sales price when they help you buy or sell a home. That's at least $500 donated for every $100,000 worth of real estate sold when you find your real estate agent with Climate Change Realty. Visit www.ccrbolder.com today and click Find an Agent to help us transform the real estate market into a battery for the regenerative economy. Welcome to the podcast. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here, man. Thank you very much, Ethan. It is a pleasure to be here with Climate Change Realty, not reality, although it's involved, right. but Climate Change Realty. Great project, Ethan. I appreciate it. Climate Change Realty, that's me. But this show is about you, and we always like to get us started with a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing at the current moment. Cool. Um, well, thank you for inviting me on the show. It's been quite a journey. I started out in Chicago. I'm the youngest of five kids, uh, all boys. And my mom always found time to do social work. So that really kind of put an impression on me in terms of you got to give back. Even if you're busier than get out, you really have to give back. And how do you give back? Well, you know how this works. When you get out of school and you're all like full of fire and you're gonna change the world. Well, I was gonna change the world and I went to Mexico to tell the Mexicans that I'm here to help change the world. Well, how about that for irony, right? You go to one of the oldest cultures in the world, you say, I'm here to change the world. Well, obviously they weren't very excited about my arrival, nor were they just <laughs> like, oh my God, thank goodness Mike is here. No, they were more, uh, so we say reserved about the reaction to that. And for me, it was a big education in terms of, if you're gonna change the world, perhaps the first thing you need to do is learn to listen. And I mean, I think, you know, seeing uh, what you're doing on this program, uh, you showed a great capacity to listen. And I think it's something that's lost in a lot of conversations, a lot of dialogues. We don't have enough capacity to hear folks rather than just to go, what do you need to do? You know, I mean, that's really easy. It's harder to listen. And so I spent the better part of 25 years listening. I worked as a journalist throughout the Americas uh, for about 25 years in Mexico and Brazil and uh, Miami. And that was where I had my first sort of big learning was just learning to listen over 25 years as a journalist. Why do you think us as or as a young person, we want to just go out and change the world. Cause that's like, I felt the exact same way at 17, mm -hmm. we were plotting, me and my friends were sitting together, plotting a scheme about how to take over the world with our giant business models. What do you think mm -hmm. causes that tendency specifically with Americans? Uh, well, I think there, you know, especially Americans, you have a sort of a privilege and you're unaware of where you're coming from. So you give yourself rights that may not be yours terms of maybe not correspond, but you really are born into a privileged society where you are doing things that you're not always listening. And so that's why it helps 
as much as getting outside of the, the country, you learn about other places, it allows you to learn about yourself. You hold up a mirror and you can see what's going on and some of the assumptions that you made, other people don't necessarily hold true. I don't know, when you went to Australia, were you defending the flag when you first got there? When they said, oh, Americans are like this, Americans are like that. And you said, no, 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 that's not true. That's not, did you go into that route or no? I was like, you know, it's like, he's they're like, he's, oh, he's such a typical American. And I was like, mm -hmm. hey man, I'm just me. Like I'm my, I'm my own breed. Uh, that, that's what I would say. I thought I said mm -hmm. I was, I was this unique thing. I didn't represent America, but, mm -hmm. um, yeah, the, the view of Americans outside the country is very interesting. And then when I finally came back, um, the real responsibility of being American really dawned on me and how mm -hmm. much, how we do have such a large influence on the whole global system. Um, we do, but I don't even think that's entirely true. I think it's more about um, what you can do in your community. Sure. I think it cuts to as close as you can to be where you have control. As you talk about the bigger world, things get farther from your control. You have mm -hmm. to work collectively to make things happen bigger. If you think about where you are and where you're having the biggest impact, it's in your immediate sphere of influence. It's friends and families, it's your community, it's, and what's really cool about it is you put a deposit in and you see it come back to you. You make an effort towards the community and you see people appreciate it, enjoy it. That's richness. That's really, really, really uh, wonderful. And those communities sometimes are defined by uh, national boundaries and all of that, but increasingly not so much. I mean, you've got a lot of a community that's happening beyond what the traditional constructs of where your community would lie. I mean, you're doing a podcast that's going to go to people all across the country. Si fuera en español, puede ser que vaya otra comunidad. We could be doing this here, you and I. I'm in Tucson, you're in Boulder, for people anywhere in the world. So it's it's exciting world we're in, and community has changed in nature, but it really is where I think most effective things get done inside a community yeah i mean when it came to my like personal journey mm -hmm. um it, it was about using what made the most sense to me and, and spending my time doing things that i could realistically see myself doing and then it came down to always wanting to speak to people and that's why i love this podcast mm -hmm. and the ambition to to change the world it's not really, and it was. It was not really about that for me. It's about how much of a positive impact can I generally have. It doesn't mean that I need to influence changes and make the system work differently. It just needs to be pushed, or, or it just see myself as a vessel to make it more more positive. Which I guess at the mm -hmm. end of the day does end up being change. But um, so so why why did you end up focusing on specifically like nature conservation work? Well, what happens is over time you go through phases. So when I went through the phase of being a journalist, I went from being a reporter to an editor to a business owner in terms of I owned the magazine for a business magazine called Latin Trade for about a decade. So when that, that whole phase ended, I sold the magazine in 2009 and the big dip and all that. I got back to thinking, I want to change the world. And I got an opportunity to join the Nature Conservancy in Chile. Mm -hmm. And so that opened up a new world for me because I was finally getting back to trying to change the world with a major organization that had the props and the chops to do it. Um, you're talking about the largest environmental organization in the world. 
what was really interesting about that organization and what I learned was one, they had a ton of really talented people. And what this organization did best was build these amazing plans and execute them for conservation. So it was, you know how like you get an opportunity and if you don't get, you don't prep for it, you don't do very well. These folks that. were ready, right? It's like ready. If Ethan says go, we're going, right? And so it was really, really fun to be involved with a, a group that was just so solid in terms of they knew their shit and they were not walking around going, we own all this. No, they were thinking, how do we get people on board? Because that was the second big lesson. As big as they were, they couldn't go anywhere without bringing everybody along. So we had this, uh, an example, we had this big project in Southern Chile where the organization bought a bankrupt tim a property from a bankrupt timber company. This is a property of maybe 150,000 acres in a really, really, really small town in Southern Chile called Chaiwim. So of course you buy the property and the folks in Chaiwim show up at the door and say, hey, what do you guys got in the way of work? Since we're not gonna have the timber mill, what are we gonna have here? And we're like, um, conservation, <laughs> right? <laughs> so you're starting out from like, we've got basic needs here, we need to meet these things. And so it was exciting because the team was effective at one, finding things for them, how them to get involved as park guards, as tour guides and things of this sort. But more importantly, they sat down with the community and they said, what do you want this place to be? Let's dream a little bit. Let's draw out a plan of what this could be. And that became the conservation plan for the entire area in terms of the property we own, but the surrounding areas. And amazingly enough, people started to buy into the vision. Mm -hmm. So the Chilean government created a national park in the area. So you had permanent protection of part of the area, so we would never screw it up again. And then you had um, the first carbon sequestration project ever done, uh, documented in Chile. And we raised $5 million doing that project. And they helped us do the inventory, do all of the counting, all of that. And then you had a major mining company, the largest mining company in the world, that saw the project, believed in the project, and selected it out of projects worldwide to fund for $20 million. All of this from a plan that these folks helped us create. And so that's like, wow, we can move, we can get some stuff done here if we get clear of the plan. What's the plan? And then start working on that plan and the little bits of it. And it comes, it took 15 years, but it was really thrilling to see how a community could make something happen for themselves, working in alliance with the Nature Conservancy, with other uh, international uh, NGOs with local government, with federal government. Um, it was cool and a real lesson about, hey, I think they call it a magic canoe. How mm -hmm. somehow when you create a project that's got enough steam to it, people start wanting to get into the canoe. And yeah. it's a magic canoe because all kinds of people can get into the canoe and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and it just goes. And so I think that uh, for me as a taste of conservation was amazing. Sounds it.
what what makes a mining company get interested in a conservation project in Chile? Uh, well, apart from uh, like Colorado, like Arizona, mining is big in Chile. Um, the mining companies think 50 years. They think into the future because they're thinking of reserves and how they're going to operate and what's going to be. And one of the big challenges for mining companies around the world is the sort of license to operate. So if I'm going to install myself in your town, how do I get community approval to operate within your town? And if you think it on a larger scale in terms of a country, how do you get licensed to operate in a country if all the people see you do is drag out rocks, crush them, take the mineral oil and rape and pillage the country and never leave anything behind? So a lot of these mining companies put major amounts of resource into philanthropic efforts, part to improve their standing in the community, but also as a way of giving back because they see that this has got to be a win-win. It can't be just them winning all the time. That's a very interesting, yeah, it's an interesting thing. That's a fair amount of money to invest essentially in the favor of the people um, of the area. Because I, I, yeah, I, I took it that they won't, they won't be obviously mining on that conservation project, but they're doing that to say, hey, we support this. Um, can we, we go extract some stuff? Mm-hmm. Can we go extract some stuff over here though? Um, yeah, no, no, there's definitely a quid pro quo. <laughs> Don't make it. I'm not making any excuses. The miners, they will have accidents. They've had accidents. They'll destroy things left and right. Oil and gas, the same thing. But some of them trying to make an effort to give back. And yeah, it's it's a trade-off. Um, I think the real question is, are they looking at the long-term resource use in terms of the way that's sustainable? And I think uh, you know, it's been an uphill struggle, but they're getting there slowly, but they're getting there. How have you seen trends in like the conservation space change throughout your career? Oh, I mean, you got a lot of them. I mean, I think the biggest one that we're living now would be, or one of the biggest ones would be if we were to turn back the clock 20, 30 years, you had people predicting climate change disasters, you're predicting a lot of pollution consequences for what we were doing, and now we're living it. It's no longer a prediction. It's no longer uh, a theoretical exercise. Um, you know, tier one uh, water shortages in, in the West. I mean, that's not something that most people could contemplate would happen in our lifetimes. And it's here, it's now. So I think that's one huge trend because I don't really have to speak a lot to convince you that these issues are real and present. You may feel disenfranchised in terms of, you may not feel uh, equipped to deal with these issues in terms of, I can't do anything about what all of these other people are doing. And I would quote that you're wrong. Um, but the second issue that I think is important that has been a trend over the years is who's at the table. If you look at it in the past, uh, talking about generating a solution in the Colorado River Basin without the tribes at the table, that's not a solution. Talking about generating a solution if Mexico's not at the table, that's not a solution. Even as basic as talking about a solution if women aren't at the table is not a solution. It's these groups that are not in power but are uh, majorities, often in cases, or they hold substantial amounts of resources to bear on these problems that aren't, that traditionally weren't at the table that now are getting a chair at the table. 
And that's really important because if you're not doing that, then you're not building a sustainable solution. When you leave people out of a discussion, it's not very likely to be sustainable because at some point, these groups are gonna raise their hand and say, hey, I was never included in all this. And they have to be included for it to be a workable long-term solution. I think the, you know one of the best ones right now that you see, and it's a real struggle, is the Colorado River Basin water talks. What are we gonna do? Right, you've got everybody there saying, we've gotta do something because we don't have enough water. What is it gonna be? I don't have the answer. Ah, Ethan, come on now. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about the work uh, at, that you're doing at the, how is it pronounced? Sonoran, Sonoran, Sonoran Institute. Institute. Sonoran yeah. Institute. Yeah, so the Sonoran Institute has been around for about uh, a little over 30 years. And if you were to say to me, Mike, what is the Sonoran Institute all about? I could tell you the mission. We're connecting people and communities with the resources that nourish and sustain them. But I think what you would really be interested in is saying, Mike, what's the secret sauce? If you were just to share with between you and me, what is it that you do or that the Sonoran Institute does that nobody else does or doesn't do as well as we do? And I think in its essence, what the Sonoran Institute does is community-based conservation focused on collaboration. So what that means is instead of looking at the entire Colorado River Basin and saying, oh, we need to talk to the federal government, we need to talk to Colorado, Arizona, California, Mexico, all about these big issues up here, we take the opposite approach. We go down to the bottom mm. and we say, okay, guys, you're under the gun. You're not going to have enough water or you're not thinking you want to develop and that's great we want you to develop how can we make sure that you have the water that you need or the green spaces included in what you need so that you can grow into the future it isn't just this five years and then things table off and you can't do anything more that's where our strength lies that's where we have traditionally been strongest and will continue to be strongest in terms of talking to communities about how they can shape their future. So let's let's back up a little bit. What, what mm -hmm. exactly is going on with the Colorado River Basin? So the Colorado River Basin, um, you're looking at a basin that uh, I would say, you know, um, if I were to put it in a nutshell, you'd say that probably about 20% of the water resources have been lost over recent years. So we are now looking at a Colorado River Basin that when we did the original compact in the 1920s, um, we had all the water divvied up and there was enough water to go around for everybody and everything was copacetic. Now, with the way things are going, and as I say, I don't have to convince you about this. If you're a skier, how was the ski season up through December? Did you have any snow? <laughs> or, you know, if right. you're down in Mexico, is the Colorado River connecting to the ocean right now? Um, these are the sorts of issues where it's no longer sort of hypothetical, it's real and you're living it. And so with this shortage that's coming, you know, generated both by how we've intervened in the river and climate, um, we really need to think about how we're gonna use our resources going forward. And so that's the big question of, we're gonna have to realign how we use water. So everybody, big cities are looking at it and saying, hmm, we continue to grow, we're booming, we are expanding, 
and yet we're, we need to rethink about how we use water. What can I do so that I've got a more secure future in terms of water? If I'm in Denver, if I'm in Las Vegas, or if I'm in Phoenix, different problems because you have different sources of water, but you can do some of the same things. Things as basic as, and you've probably seen this, a low flow toilets. Yeah. You completely change the use of water. It's half the amount of water. Or you can look at things like here in Tucson, we have purple pipes all over the place. You know what purple pipes mean? Purple pipes mean they're using reused water. There's This is treated water that they're using to water parks, golf courses, things of this sort. Instead of taking tap water, they're using this water after it's been used, they treat it, and then they use it to irrigate. You can save huge amounts of water. And you've also seen here and above all, you see the use of zero scape uh, landscaping. You don't need to have a lawn, stupid grass, as they call it, on your front yard. Mm -hmm. I know it's a tradition and all of that, but no, it sucks. it's just that, right? And so these are the sorts of things where people just are getting it. They're thinking it through and they're saying, we can continue to grow and reduce our water footprint. Uh, folks out on the farm, rural areas, who are really getting, you know, they call it buy and dry. I go up to you and I say, hey, you've got water rights. I'll buy you out and just don't use the water and I'll take the water and we'll be good. Well, your farm, your, your family has been in rat cattle ranching or agriculture for generations. So you're basically going to somebody and saying, stop your way of living and get off the land. And that's not acceptable. You can't do that to people and just say, oh, right. there's no more water, you gotta go. What you can do though, is you can work out things. You can figure out ways whereby um, drip agriculture or other uses of water, how you use water, when you use the water, you can begin to have that dialogue. You know, the West Slope versus the, the, you know, the Front Range. That dialogue has to happen. I know it's a difficult one, but it has to happen. And so it's, it's really exciting because that's what's going on. There's a whole series of things going on. People addressing these issues in different ways, but they're talking because they have to. And, you know, I have been just blown away by the amount of collaboration on the Colorado River when you would think, well, I'm upstream. What do I care about you downstream? No, there's a real sense of collaboration. There is a dialogue there that... I wouldn't have expected. And it's that sense of community again that I think is at the heart of all of this. We are in this together. It's not um, it's not sustainable if we don't all benefit from how we're using these resources. Well, I'm 100% with you when it comes to purple pipes or, or gray water or better water mm -hmm. conservation. But I mean, is it truly a, a finite resource? If if it were, we would if we were to just conserve, would that just still kick the can down the road and we would eventually run out of water like at some point? I'm not or does water have the the potential to actually regenerate like other life sources do? Well, you can regenerate how you capture water. You definitely have climate change that's changing the dynamics of water. So um, the snowpack melts, so you don't have as much water with evaporation, you lose water. So you are having water, uh, more arid places created and wetter places created. Your challenge here in terms of a finite amount of water is not as great 
at this point, as you might think, because part of it is how we assign the use of water. So right now, about 80% of the water, 70% of the water goes for agricultural purposes. Hmm. Right? So you, you have the water. The water is there. It's how we're assigning it. If you choose to move away from agriculture towards cities, as you say, you're not creating more water. You're redirecting water. So you may still go over time, have the same problem, but it's not as sharp as you might imagine. Um, these are complicated negotiations. As I say, you're telling people who've been farming for generations, don't do that anymore. And they don't want to do that. The cities um, are struggling for water. Um, should all of this water be going to California? There's a big fight. You know, Californians don't get along well with other people and all that. How do we build community, right? Well, I'm saying right now, how many times do you see people come into Colorado and say, I'm leaving California? Is that all you're asking for a house? Here, I'll pay cash. And everybody's like, you're making real estate prices, right? Yes. That's what's going right. on. And so that tension replays itself in differing ways. The upside to all of that is we are all part of the same community. So finding ways to channel that energy towards positive good, half your commission going to a non-for-profit. Great. You can give back to the same community that uh, is uh, moving forward the real estate prices. This is finding ways to incorporate, say, affordable housing, things of this sort. These are not zero-sum games. They can be wins for everybody if we think them through. That's all. How can conservation projects actually empower local communities? As you build resilience in a community, it gains power. So as I say, if you look at it from the top, you're saying, oh, well, we've got to do these things. Da, 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 da. If you look at it from your community's perspective, in the measure that you can slow down water in your neighborhood, you have water that's uh, perhaps using uh, feeding your park. If you don't have a local park, maybe you should have a local park. So all of a sudden you've got a green space and that creates health benefits for your community. It helps with things like uh, um, uh, you know, extreme heat events. If you have trees and canopy and all that, that's gonna be a benefit for your community. That is something that, again, plays into a bigger picture because if everybody's doing that, you've got trees that are absorbing carbon, you've got the water slowing down, so it's going back into the aquifer. You're not just ripping through resources and kind of going, right. oh, well, the guys downstream can deal with it, where it won't be sustainable for you and it won't help anything bigger. So you're going against a virtuous circle. By being self-sufficient and working out these issues, you can help contribute to a bigger solution. Yeah, but in order to be interested in that, I think you have to kind of see yourself as part of something more. And I don't think everybody everybody is like that, specifically in the U.S. I think you asked me about my experience in Australia in the beginning. And one of the things I noticed right away is that I would walk around campus with my headphones in, listen to my mm -hmm. own music, and I would do my own thing. And I'm American and we, you know, we walk to class by ourselves and stuff. But everyone on campus in Australia was like in pairs or in groups. So I think one of the things we, uh, we fight with and we have a lot of arguments in this country is because everyone kind of sees the world through their own lens globally but specifically in the u.s there's this really intense individualistic culture which makes it hard to come to agreements you know 
Um, you know, I hear you, and I think there's definitely a lot of truth in what you say in terms of, especially out west, this independence. Um, I'm going to go my way, and that's the way it's going to be. But you know what's curious about that? It's a shared culture. Of individualism. Yes, it's a shared culture. And yes. so um, it's something that uh, you can, in fact, reinforce in the sense of making people see that by taking good decisions, their decisions, they gain more control over their lives. Definitely. This is the farmer who goes towards um, low water use crops. He begins to gain more independence by doing that. Um, this is the person in the city who begins to capture uh, you know, solar energy off their roof. They're doing it for an individualistic purpose, I grant you. They mm -hmm. want to have their own energy supply. They want to be independent. Right. Well, if enough of them do it, then all of a sudden we're starting to get a collective action there that people are doing something that's helping us all out. And right. that's where I think you know a little bit of nudging, a little bit of leadership, and a little bit of guidance people will identify the right things to do. Um, what is interesting here in the West particularly is that same rugged individualism includes a huge, a very strong sense of community. Very strong sense, I've been impressed, I agree with you. There are a lot of people like, I'm in my world, I'm doing my thing. But those same people are the ones who show up to the community events. It's really odd in terms of what you're saying, in terms of I hear it, I see it, but they also have a hundred percent dedication to their communities. They will serve for their communities. They will volunteer for their communities. We went out to pick up trash on the Santa Cruz River here in Tucson the other day. We had 200 people out there picking up trash. Wow. Okay, and you say, Mike, how is this individual, you know, they didn't throw the trash in the river. And the funny thing is, these people are looking for the hardest things to get. There's a tire buried. We're all working on trying to get the tire out. You know what I mean? They were not doing it half-assed. They were in it to win it. And um, I don't know how to explain that sort of conflict of cultures in terms of individual versus community, but there's so much community here. It's really exciting. Really, really impressive. Well, it's almost like American culture versus human nature. There are these chemicals that flow through your brain, like serotonin, when someone like claps for you and it's like, yeah, it was Ethan, blah, blah, blah. And then you get this rush of good feelings. And then when you're working together to pull a tire out and you're all working on the same cause, that's the oxytocin, the camaraderie pushing you to continue wanting to do that. That's a natural thing where we used to live in tribes of 150 people and collaborate to go get the meal. And at the end of the day, we get the dopamine rush when we would eat it. That's what I, I always love to talk about about um, this idea of enlightened self-interest, considering others mm -hmm. above yourself being the best way to serve yourself. And that's from a, a French philosopher who was observing America. And he's like, in the 18th mm -hmm. century, he's like, why is this country working so well? Everyone's working for themselves, but in the pursuit of serving others. And that's why the economy was working so well in the US. We'll see, it might have eroded a little bit lately, but the, the foundation is still there. Um, so as far as like specific projects that the Sanaran Institute is currently working on, what are the main endeavors that you're currently well, undertaking? Well, the Sanaran Institute, we have a, a bunch. Um, there's four major ones. Uh, we do something called Growing Water Smart, which is our bread and butter in terms of community-based uh, engagement with uh, municipalities and counties throughout the west what we do is we help them work on making plans for the future stewarding their natural resources 
So we bring together people at Fort Collins. Like, okay, you guys can see the issues. Let's see how you're going to manage your water going forward. Um, we hold a workshop, then afterwards we would give them money to develop a plan so that they move that plan forward. And what's gotten really interesting is it's gotten deeper in the sense that, okay, you got a plan, you're moving forward on that plan, let's measure it. How's it going? Did what you come up, come up with work so that you can adjust and change? And then others, you can share best practices. Look, guys, we tried that. Um, this one, this one really helped. You know, outdoor water use was a big win, and we'd recommend it to you. If you're looking at it doing it in your county, do it this way. And that's become um, a real sort of uh, network or opportunity in terms of getting people who are working on these issues throughout uh, different states talking to each other about these issues. It's been a real huge win. We've done about a representatives of about half the state of um, uh, Colorado in terms of population and we're, we introduced in Arizona and we're probably up to somewhere about 15 to 20 percent of the Arizona population and then later this year or next year we'll be going into California with the same program. So that program has been really successful, award-winning. We do it together with the Lincoln Institute of land policy, um, really great partners in terms of just people who see the issue and say, okay, there's nobody helping these communities figure out what to do. And it's not that we go in and we go, you should do this. No, it's we provide the convening forum so that they can figure it out and we give mm -hmm. them some money. And so that's really exciting to see people figuring it out and working on their own. The other big one we do um, is we work in the Colorado River Delta which is in Mexico, where the Colorado River connects to the sea. That has not been happening until recently. Because we've had so much intervention in the Colorado River, it stopped connecting to the sea. So our team, together with a bunch of organizations, um, as part of the Raise the River Coalition, um, said, we can change this. It doesn't have to be this way. And so we started to restore, together with other organizations, bits and pieces of the delta and that meant one getting water to flow so the government's agreed to put water back into the river so that we could keep this going it meant planting trees it meant um, getting communities engaged again in their uh, natural resources so probably about 600 acres have been recovered that way and it's truly amazing because you think about it in terms of on paper, this is what's supposed to happen, and this is coming next, and this is how it goes next, and we'll do this and that and the other. You don't think about the intangibles, what happens. For example, um, beavers are on the endangered species list. They start showing up to our restoration sites. We don't know where they came from, right? It's like, okay. And, you know, the beavers just do what they do. They're engineers. They start damming water and they start creating. And so it's just really cool because nature just takes over. Birds start returning. And even the people begin to see things that are just amazing. We have uh, Antonia Gonzalez is a, a leader of the Cucapa tribe in Mexico. And uh, she has been a really huge help for us in terms of understanding the, the meaning of where we're working and what the importance of the land is, especially for their culture. And her mother passed away last year, unfortunately, 
But before she passed away, her mother got to see river in the Colorado River again. And so it's really, really, you know, impactful because you say, this is a woman who is telling her daughter, look at this used to have water. When I was a young girl, this used to have water. And, you know, being kids, you're kind of like, yeah, yeah, right, 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 right. But for her to be able to see it again before she passed and be, be able to celebrate with her daughter the meaning of that, well, that's huge. That's, you know, you're beginning to get back to where you were. And, you know, when the water flows in the Delta, people come out to see it. The first time before we took part in the pulse flow in 2014, people came out to see the, the water. We didn't expect it. We thought, well, we're just, it's almost like an engineering project. We're getting the water back in the river, but everybody came out to see it. They were playing it. It was like, it's like, oh, oh, we've lost a connection here, mm -hmm. right? And I mean, the current day time, we're working in the Santa Cruz River on the same issue. And, you know, it's really interesting because of COVID, people are much more aware of nature than they were in the past, because where can you go and be safe? But nature, you know, you can go out and have a hike and you don't have to worry about wearing a mask and all that. You can go out and do what you do. And um, so we've been really fortunate on the Santa Cruz River, which is our other major project we're working. It's a crazy river that starts in Arizona, goes into Mexico, and then flows north towards Tucson. And so we're working with a whole group of people to get that river flowing again, because through all of our interventions over the years, we've uh, dried out the river. And so by using water from Nogales, the, the effluent or used water out of Nogales, we can get river back into water back into the river. And so you're restoring a river back to health. You're seeing things happen again. The natural cycle is happening again in terms of once you add water, the trees come back, the trees come back, the, the if, you know, the species, Wildlife. the animals come back. And so you start to get back into a space where it's just, it's really exciting because you're bringing something back to life. That we need. Not only do we need, but when you think about when you think about resources, people immediately think of minerals and oil. And when you think about the most pivotal, essential, most amazing resource in the world, there's no doubt in my mind. Of course, it's water. And when you go and you sit next to a brook and you hear it babbling and you stick your hand in, it's just like, oh, like this is the source of everything. And we take it such for granted. We just flip a switch and it starts coming out like crazy. Mm -hmm. And then we. And then we like defecate in it and then waste all this drinking water that just sucks it down. It doesn't make sense to me. I mean, I don't know if composting toilets or gray water is the solution, but this stuff, like we definitely take it for granted and it's so essential. And you can see, I could totally see how a bunch of people who have had their river dried out from when they were kids, there was maybe a little bit of water and then it's been dry for years can come back and be like, oh, it's like life is returning to the community. Mm -hmm. It's just a, probably an amazing feeling. What have um, you and the organization learned through international cooperation between states in the U.S. and like in Mexico, facilitating that transfer or whatever rejuvenation of the water stream into the ocean? The cross-border problems are, you know, um, it's interesting because we find that there's the same sense of community everywhere. Community is the base. That basic building block, whether you're in Mexico, whether in the US, or your cross border, applies. It's part of a community. There are 
a good majority of people who see community, who reinforce and support that community. So for us, it's taking part in enabling that group to move forward. So as I say, the, the work on the Colorado River has become increasingly inclusive, and we are really excited about that. You know, the fact that the tribes are getting a uh, seat at the table to be able to talk about these things, the things that, that Mexico is taking active part in this, storing water in the US. These are things that are demonstrations of community. We're all here together. And so that for us, as a binational organization, it's funny when I think about diversity, equity, and inclusion for the Sonoran Institute, it's part of what we do. More than half of our staff is in Mexico. Mm. We have Mexican leaders, we have US leaders. It, it isn't um, the defining characteristic, your nationality or your gender isn't the defining characteristic. I know for the people who are working within the organization, they may face challenges because of who they are, but within the organization, uh, you're speaking Spanish, you're speaking English, we feel confident that we're making people, giving people the, the forum to do what they need to do. So um, in terms of international issues, that is something we need to make more general. So, you know, it's really, it's funny, but you can see how the Western United States and Northern Mexico share more than the East Coast or Mexico City. They have more in common, they have more community, they share some of the same family names. It's just like, we're so mixed together, and yet we fight a lot, of course, but we've got a lot to build on in terms of community. Well, we fight in this country between each other right? too. And so, Part of the Sonoran Institute is called, that is the big learning. Like, hey, I know they speak Spanish, they speak a different uh, tribal languages, whatever, but these are members of our community. It's, we're one, it's one basin. It isn't the US basin, it isn't the tribal basin, it isn't the Mexican basin, it is one basin. And the water issues are helping bring that to, to the fore, but that's really for us, Ethan, that has been um, where we draw most of our strength and um, where we see the biggest future in terms of moving that forward. That's the big one. If we can get that to continue to move forward as it has, we'll be doing really well. And there's a lot of challenges in that area. You know, uh, how water is used in Mexico, crossing the border into the US or vice versa. And that that's part of the puzzle, but um, that is where you will see a tremendous amount of opportunity for positive growth in terms of the environment and community. Well, with leadership from someone with as much energy as you, I have no doubt that the projects will continue to uh, thrive. One thing I read on your website that I thought was really cool was this project at the Las Arenas Treatment Wetland. Would you mind telling me a bit about that? Because that, re that was really interesting. Yeah, Las Arenitas is a wetland treatment plant. It's um, basically, the idea is that nature can provide services for treatment of water. And so then that water can be reused in, go ahead. What, what exactly is treatment of water also? So if you want to, if you have uh, water that's been used for the sewage system, it comes out, you want to treat that water. If you funnel that into the wetland, the wetland will help uh, treat that water so that when it comes out the other side, it's usable for agriculture, or other human uses. So you can take it through a process whereby giving water to nature will provide an element of 
um, solution or what we call a green infrastructure solution. Instead of making everything gray, cement, building it out, the infrastructure, you use nature to help you clean the water. And so Las Arenitas is a very ambitious project aimed at doing that in Mexicali. And we think there are going to be a lot of applications for that same idea elsewhere throughout the, uh, um, the West, in fact, northern Mexico and western United States, because uh, wastewater treatment is an area of a lot of investment. And wastewater itself is one of the perhaps most underappreciated uh, water resources in the West in terms of what it could be used for. Well, absolutely. And I think we should not even use the word waste anymore because it's these mm. rich, these human um, feces is rich in carbon or nitrogen and phosphorus. I think I'm not a scientist. And that could be used as fertilizer. You know, nature doesn't waste anything. When animals defecate, it goes into the soils and it nourishes the plants. So if you could find a way it's just we we it's just become exceedingly clear to me that the way we live is so ridiculously inefficient, and that's why we're having so many issues with the ecology with the current ecological system because we're putting things in places where they're not having any benefit at all. And wastewater is is another example of that. So this this project is take using natural systems to mm-hmm. to like I don't know is it like half of it's it sounded like half of the area had like fresh water and the other half had like the wastewater and there was something in the middle that was like filtering it with like plants or something yeah so you have uh just ponds collection ponds where they go through and then they get to the wetlands where the wetlands will absorb the water as well and you're slowly filtering it through a series of processes to to reduce the the waste content of the water so it's it's exciting um it's innovative it happens because we have great partnerships with you know the municipal authorities in in mexicali with uh, the nature conservancy with fundacion gonzalo rio ronte there are a number of actors when i say we i don't mean we the sonoran institute i mean there's just a whole series of actors that take part in this that really make it possible to do these things that um have the potential to generate major changes in how we interact with nature because nature has a role i mean nature nature is everything we're we're part of nature everything we make Mm -hmm. is technically still but what and and whatever um but what are your thoughts on on making these these type of conservation projects actually economically viable or enticing to a non-philanthropic investor someone who's looking for returns okay um if you look on return on investment um I've done a number of these projects in terms of there are different ways you look at it. One, carbon sequestration. We plant trees, it absorbs carbon. We measure the amount of carbon. Somebody gives us money for doing that. Or you plant trees and more water gets stored in the aquifer. And so therefore, if I'm a beer company, I'm worried about water use, I give you money to do more of that because you're helping restore water. All of these systems, and even the wetland treatment, all of these systems add value to nature and provide a sort of tradable commodity, if you will, coming out the other side. The challenge with that for me is most of what we're doing for nature is priceless. And you're saying planting these trees and doing what you're doing has this value, which is for me fictitious because what you have there, what, you know, some of the things we're losing now, you don't get back. Right. It's not like, oh, I can buy another one. And what this is priceless. You know, it's just like you work in real estate. Some places have a view. 
that view is priceless. Yes, I know you put a price on it, but it's priceless. Being able to see the sunset from that spot, that spot is really important. And so to try to put a monetary value on that helps because I can go to you say, say, Ethan, if you invest, give me $10 million that I can show you that will generate $30 million in return for you. Water, water rights, easy one. Right now it's about, you know, uh, I can give you numbers as how much that water rights are worth and how much we could generate. Nah, 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 nah. But at the end of the day, we're talking about trying to do financial transactions with something that doesn't really have value. It's priceless. It's really, and so for me, I've done a lot of those. Um, uh, those sorts of transactions, and I think there's a limit to that. Business has to be involved, but business has to be involved not as a compensation. Business has to be involved as a change of the way I do things. So, example, why should you and I have to do recycling? Uh, it's a waste of the resources. You know, when I was talking about before, it's a waste of resources not to recycle. Why, but why aren't the companies that produce the plastic thinking maybe I should go in a different direction? Because it's cheaper to make plastic. Right. They don't have to work. They produce it. And when it goes out the door, it's not their problem. But we should price that externality. We should, they should well, be responsible. One way for to do stuff. it, right? Yeah. But, um, that's, you know, that's where we need to think about how things are working and help companies get to the right place. Um, we will do all of the above as we go forward there's no doubt about it but as i say there are ways you can think about this that um say you're a mining company and you're looking out 50 years and you need water for the next 50 years and you know well that you're not going to get any more colorado river water as strong as mining is in colorado arizona or california and have these special rights worked out over the years you kind of know where the which way the wind is blowing you're not going to get any more resources what can you do? Well, maybe um, one of your avenues would be if I invest in communities to hook up, say, in Nogales, if I hook up 200,000 homes to the sewage system in Nogales where there is no sewage system in exchange for them giving me those water rights for the used water, the effluent, I'm pretty sure I'm going to have water for the next 50 years and beyond coming from those toilets. Mm-hmm. That's, think about it, that would work. And you can put a monetary value on how much it would cost you to invest in connecting these people. <clears throat> That's the sort of thinking that you need people to go through, thinking, okay, water's a limited resource. We need it here. How do we get it here if I need it to do what I'm going to do? And those opportunities exist in a lot of different forms. And I think you'll see more of it as the water crisis grows in terms of people who have long-term thought processes will go, well, how do I get water for the longer term? Where's that water going to come from? As you say, if it's a limited resource, where does it come from? How do I deal with it? It's a huge question. Mm -hmm. What type of projects are you engaging with in your consulting business? Uh, I don't do consulting anymore. When I was doing consulting, um, I was working throughout the Americas with all kinds of groups in terms of, um, you know, healthcare, schools, uh, uh, sports, uh, all sorts of nonprofits. Um, the overriding need when I was doing uh, uh, consulting was 
how do you inspire people to action? Yeah. Is it giving? Is it joining? Is it doing? Whatever it is, how do you get people's engines roar going to to uh, get them to take action? And that it has a lot to do with listening, because I need to listen to hear what the community is talking about. What is it that people are inspired by? What are they? What are their hopes, fears, dreams? How do you get engaged with that? And how do you engage on them in a way that's with integrity, that you're actually following through with what you say you're going to do, you do, and you bring something to bear that will change the outcomes. Um, you you and your, your case and your business, you are making a, a case for that. I sell real estate. That's fine. I'm going to give half of my commissions to things that I believe in. That gets your motor running, your inspiration going. Um, when I talk to uh, folks on boards of, of nonprofits, you know what they hate doing the most? Asking people for money. That's what they say. They just hate doing that. They'll be they'll do anything. They'll give their time, whatever. But don't 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 make me ask other people for money. If you ask people on boards, what do they like the most about being on the board of a non for profit? You know what they'll tell you? What? The ability to give. Yes. Yeah. Right. And so then you say, well, why wouldn't you ask other people for money? You are denying them the single most thing that you enjoy the most as a board member, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's listening and saying, hey, there's a disconnect here. Listen to what they're saying. And, and then you can get to something where they go, aha, ding, the little light bulb goes on. I get it. I hear what you're saying. I got it. Okay. You don't have to lecture at them. You hold up the mirror and they can see what you're talking about. Did you not find that the most effective way to get people inspired and fired up is storytelling? Storytelling helps without a doubt. If you can tell a good story, there's no doubt that that will help. Yeah, I don't know. I think you like connecting with people on like an emotional or visceral level is the way you actually get them to action. You know, most of our people like to think that they're their thoughts and their, you know, their human brain is really what's getting them to make choices. But at the end of the day, we really are still mostly, you know, our evolution mostly comes from other animals. So we have these instincts that we act on and most people are very, are very controlled by how they feel about things. So if you can connect with them on that level and then connect that to an action, mm -hmm. they're likely to take it. I don't know. Well, Mike, I, I appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast today. It's been great. I appreciate everything your organization is doing, some really interesting, innovative things. And the the listening uh, is a trend I'm hearing. Of course, just giving people a chance to either feel heard and then processing their ideas and actually come up with something to add to that people really appreciate that so that's really cool i just love to ask at the end any advice you have for young people who are passionate about uh building a better world wow um a lot of it has to do with doing it you know i wasn't great at school going out and doing it getting involved um to the capacity that you can do it because it helps you figure out a few key things are you really interested in doing this or is it something you say you're interested in doing? Which isn't bad. Half of life is figuring out what you don't want to do, right? Mm -hmm. If you're not the type that knew you wanted to be a doctor when you grew up and could study towards that, if you're not that defined type personality, not figuring out what you don't like is just as valuable. So if you want to change the world you live in, do it where you find the most enjoyment. So combine it with what you do, it doesn't mean that you're a bad person, that you're not willing to work eight hours a day on in a soup kitchen. 
maybe it's once a week and you get something out of it, they get something out of it. That's cool. Just do it where you meet, where you find the the sweet spot in terms of your commitment. Yeah, because you're not going to be able to last long term doing something, um, at least with a lot of energy, unless you're really passionate about it and you have to be mm-hmm. introspective and find that out. When it comes to knowing what not to do, for me, it was like, as long as I don't work for someone else, I'll be good. So I, I struggled to find a way to do that. And that's gotten me to where I am today. Uh, and it's been a pleasure yeah. to have you, man. Thanks so much for well, taking the time. Well, thank you so much for having me and great job with the podcast. It's really exciting what you're doing. I appreciate it, man. And all right, everybody. You're welcome. We'll see you soon. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrboulder.com today.